I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Scott Critch, who teaches film and media studies at Colorado College. His teaching and research focuses on political media, documentary, psychoanalytic theory, and film philosophy. With Todd McGowan, he co-hosted the first two LAC conferences in 2016 and 2017 at Colorado College. His new book is Beyond Bias, Conservative Media, Documentary Form, and the Politics of Hysteria, available from Oxford University Press 2021. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Follow him at Twitter at S-Critch. That's S-K-R-Z-Y-C-H at Twitter. As with all Rendering Unconscious podcast episodes, there is a video accompanying this episode at YouTube. Just visit Trapart Films' YouTube channel. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T film at YouTube or search for Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Tripart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. Um, yeah, I, th- I think I'm happy to start with kind of how I came uh, came to psychoanalysis, if, if that makes sense. Um, so I was a um, you know first generation college student growing up in Southern California. Um, and, uh, I went to Cal State University Northridge thinking I was already interested in education, um, thinking that I wanted to be, you know, a high school teacher, um, and, uh, you know, just had really no idea about higher education, right. And, and kind of what happens, uh, in the university settings. And I was an English major. And for me, the really kind of turning point in my career was, uh, taking, 
you know, a survey course and introduction to literary theory, right? Um, and the class just absolutely blew my mind. Um, and I uh, had a great instructor, Jack uh, Fisher Solomon, who was a post-structuralist. Uh, and so, you know, encountering all these different, you know, schools of literary theory, Marxism, fe feminism, post-colonial theory, and, and psychoanalysis. Um, and I think one of the, you know, kind of major kind of orientations for me that came out of, of that experience and that would lead me to graduate school and then eventually to psychoanalysis was a very kind of straightforward pedagogical um, assignment that I think a lot of uh, English instructors use, which is to assign a particular text and then require students to apply a variety of different um, theoretical lenses to the same text, right? You know, read this poem or short story or watch this film, you know, and then offer a Marxist reading and then a feminist reading and then maybe a psychoanalytic reading and see how uh, they differ. Um, and I think that apart from just the the gesture of, uh, of learning these different theoretical lenses, what I really took away from that practice um, was that, that changing the lens by which I read, right, didn't just change the interpretation, it actually ended up changing me, right, um, both as a scholar, um, but, but, you know, as, as a human being, right, in a, in a broad sense of the, the word, um, that uh, to, to read differently, to um, to look for alternative forms of signification um, in, uh, in a text, in a social political phenomenon, um, actually ends up changing the reader in the process. And so I think that insight for me was just, you know, paving the way for, for psychoanalysis and an engagement in psychoanalytic theory, which, you know, quite obviously uh, takes an interest in, um, in the power of signification, of resignification, um, and, and the like. And so um, I eventually moved away from, from English and literary theory and moved more into film studies, film theory, um, which, which also was a kind of fruitful discipline to engage in psychoanalytic theory since, um, especially in the US, uh, film departments really emerged in the academy um, at, the, at, uh, at a time in which um, French philosophy, French theory and psychoanalysis was, was so uh, influential. Um, and so I, I found even, even though I was going to graduate school in the early 2000s when, uh, when psychoanalysis was, uh, was not quite as prominent um, in, in film studies departments, it still was a, you know, a kind of viable area of study um, and was, uh, I, I was lucky enough to find myself in a doctoral program that uh, was steeped in continental philosophy and Lacanian psychoanalysis. Um, and so that, that was, uh, that kind of, you know, sent me on my way and, uh, and, and here I am now. Is that how you met Todd McGowan? Because I saw that you and Todd McGowan did the first Black conference together. Yeah, so what... Um, so how did that happen? Um, I had a great committee at Oklahoma State University, um, great uh, faculty, Brian Price, Megan Sutherland, uh, Hugh Mannon, um, who's a, a great Lacanian film theorist. And they started um, a journal and a, a, a film theory conference called World Picture. Um, and I've been reading uh, Todd's uh, book uh, that was relatively new at the time, The End of Dissatisfaction. Um, and, you know, I was 
you know, a, a grad student who was trying to find his way and thought, I'm going to invite uh, this guy, Todd McGowan, to, to come to the conference. Um, he ended up coming, giving a, a, a great paper at one of the opening sessions. Um, and then we ended up doing uh, a panel together on the topic of failure um, at the Society for Cinema and Media Studies um, with my dear friend and colleague, uh, Jason Landrum. Um, and, uh, and then once I got uh, the job uh, in film and media studies at Colorado College, I reached out to Todd again to have him give a talk. Um, when he was working on his comedy book, he came and gave a, a beautiful talk on uh, Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. Um, and I had heard that, that he and uh, Hilary Neroni and Jennifer Friedlander and Henry Cripps, you know, were interested in, in putting on a, a conference and we happened to have some funding at that time. And so it was just kind of this perfect uh, mesh uh, of, of uh, kind of intersecting careers and interests and all that. Very cool. Todd's the greatest. Such a nice guy. He's great. <laughs> mm -hmm. And now and you've just met one, one of the funniest people I've ever, I've ever met. Yeah, he's great. He's the whole package. Great, smart, funny, personable, <laughs> open-minded. <laughs> um, and, and he'll deny all of those things if he happens to hear this. <laughs> Which he probably will. <laughs> um, and now you have a new book, Beyond Bias. Yeah, so... Um... Yeah, you know, I, I grew up in a, a staunchly evangelical, politically conservative household. Um, Rush, Rush Limbaugh was on the radio uh, all the time in the car, you know, when, when my parents were driving me to school. Um, yeah, and so I, I've been interested in um, conservative media, right-wing politics and, and discourse uh, in, the, in the U.S. in particular. I'm a, I'm a you know, uh, a bit of an Americanist uh, in, in my kind of scholarly work. Um, but around the time I was finishing graduate school, um, it was, again, a, a kind of fortuitous moment, at least for developing this project. Um, it was around the time of the, mid, the first midterm elections uh, during the Obama administration when the, the Tea Party kind of arose as, mm. as this, uh, you know, a very prominent reactionary uh, movement. And, uh, and I think a moment in which uh, Fox News and other conservative media outlets, you know, kind of shifted from, you know, what they what they had been doing for for decades, really, if we if we, you know, consider talk radio as maybe the, the, the starting point that then evolved into to Fox News, and then everything we have today. Um, I think there's a kind of shift away from conservative political entertainment. Um, that had been typical of those outlets to a more kind of activist strain that you had, you know, Fox News hosts um, organizing some of the rallies for the Republican uh, candidates who would be part of that Tea Party wave that would really bring into uh, the United States Congress um, a, a large group of, of some of the most kind of extreme right-wing politicians that, that we had seen uh, in, in a long time. So that, that was kind of happening. Um, Glenn Beck was the, the kind of most prominent uh, host on Fox News at that time. And, and uh, journalists were responding to Glenn Beck, if, if people recall, um, you know, he would often break down crying uh, in front of the camera. Um, he would, you know, do a lot of the kind of typical right-wing um, media talking points, but he would have all these 
chalkboards on his stage and go through all of his kind of conspiracy theories, but it was like highly affective, highly emotional. And so journalists at the time were really using the term hysteria, hysteric hysteria to describe Glenn Beck. Um, and, and of course, in a very, you know, um, kind of conventional, even stereotypical use of the term, not at all with any psychoanalytic um, inflection. Um, so, so those things were happening uh, in, in the media and conservative media in particular. Um, and then at the same time, in psychoanalytic theory, especially in Lacanian studies, um, I think we were seeing the um, kind of really productive response, uh, especially um, in uh, Anglophone uh, departments and studies of the response to the English translation of Seminar 17, where Lacan lays out his four discourses, including the hysterics discourse. Um, so there was, a, um, I think, a kind of resurgence um, of an interest in um, hysteria um, through uh, a lot of the scholarly work that was responding to the translation of Seminar 17, also just an interest in, in discourse theory. Um, and so that, that was really, I think, the, the jumping off point for me of thinking about conservative political media as, as a kind of um, enactment of hysterical discourse. Oh, can you say more about that? Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess um, I'll try. Uh, um, I mean, I think I, I, as I was diving into the project, one, one thing I decided quite early on is um, I was not interested in the archive of talk radio or Fox News, which just seemed like impossible um, as uh, as an archive to to get into. One could spend you know a lifetime um, you know tracking the um, the kind of excess over the top rhetoric um, that appears on a daily basis. Let alone like as as uh, websites like Breitbart um, you know uh, were emerging at that time. Um, so I settled in on you know, starting with conservative documentary films, um, which had kind of emerged um, in response and as an attempt to rebut uh, the films of Michael Moore and the kind of the, the popularity of Michael Moore as this, you know, over the top figure on the left who had had such great success um, making political documentary. Um, and it really kind of produced a cottage industry uh, of right-wing documentary films um, that, didn't seem to have an agenda of their own, except for erasing or counteracting um, the arguments of, of more prominent, you know, documentary filmmakers like Michael Moore. Um, and so that the, the kind of act of negation, of refusal, of rebuttal um, was, was one of the first kind of tropes of, of the conservative uh, documentary cycle that, that stood out to me as I dug into them, um, which as I was continuing to read in psychoanalytic theory started to, you know, I think suggest some connections with a lot of the writing on, on hysteria and hysterical discourse. Um, but I, th I think what really crystallized that were a few really suggestive um, arguments um, by, by a few uh, you know, authors I was reading at the time, uh, Joan Kopchak um, in her uh, you know, hugely important and influential book, Read My Desire, uh, talked about democracy as a kind of hysterical political arrangement. Um, she, argues, she says at some point that democracy hystericizes the subject, that when we go into the voting booth, you know, we're, we're engaging in, in the, you know, 
arguably one of the most significant acts of political participation, right? To, uh, to, to vote, to express our voice, to express our opinion. And yet at that very same moment, um, we become just one among millions of others, right? That uh, at our most individual, we also become a part of the mass, the masses, right? Um, and, and that's, I, I think, her way of expressing um, the, the link between democracy and then uh, hysteria as a structure. Um, and then I also, I came across uh, Juliet Mitchell's Mad Men and Medusa's Reclaim, uh, Reclaiming Hysteria. Um, that, that she published in 2000, uh, where she just does this, you know, beautiful uh, kind of revision um, and uh, close analysis of so many of Freud's case studies uh, of hysteria and notices uh, what Freud didn't um, in each of those cases, um, examples of sibling rivalry, right? That, um, you know, uh, Dora and others um, uh, were, I think, from Mitchell's perspective, experiencing um, these kind of hysterical breakdowns in part because of their, um, their familial situations of, of not knowing where they stand relative to their parents or care, caretakers because of the presence of a sibling um, that, you know, Mitchell describes the sibling as um, the one who is like me and unlike me, right? We, we share um, a family name, we live in the same space, um, we probably we share some DNA, perhaps, or even a likeness, um, and yet also it's an antagonistic relationship, oftentimes, right? Um, that that we may love and hate this person, uh, our our brother or sister, at the same time. Um, and this is, I think, Mitchell's way of really expanding hysteria. You know, she she treats it as a universal possibility for subjective experience, and and really explodes. Um, you know, the way in which hysteria has been gendered histor uh, historically, right? That uh, anyone can become hystericized at any moment. Um, and, and I think the way that Mitchell emphasized these kind of lateral relationships of someone who is like me and unlike me in the case of the sibling um, and, and, and how that um, renders um, kind of unclear where I stand in the kind of family dynamic to me seemed like a really interesting way to think about politics and to think about democracy of what does it mean to uh, live uh, and inhabit, uh, to live in a country where, um, you know, our neighbors, you know, might be, might be Trump supporters or, or vote for Trump or have, you know, Trump signs in their, uh, in their front lawns. Um, and, and so I think Mitchell's account, I think, was 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 also really uh, important for me in the, the the development of the argument, and and I think you know I was a little resistant to do do we need one more book on hysteria or hysterical discourse? Um, obviously, in the archive of psychoanalytic theory, um, it's been talked about so much, um, uh, and and but uh, I think between you know Kopchak, Mitchell, um, and and a bunch of other uh, psychoanalytic thinkers that I cite. Um, I, I really was convinced by the idea that um, if psychoanalytic theory and practice is going to con continue, right, that hysteria always has to be part of the conversation. Um, you know, of, of course, this is where psychoanalysis for Freud begins uh, with, hyster with hysterics. And so I, I, I thought, I think I just need to run with it. Yeah, yes, we absolutely need more books on hysteria. And also, like, this book uses it in a very, like, way of this moment you know so that's different than other other things coming out or that have come out mm. I hope so I hope so <laughs> and also I feel like 
the what people some people understand but a lot of people don't understand about hysteria is like it's always going to exist because no matter how much you box people in or try to like change the narrative to be more inclusive or more exclusive or whatever the hysteria within all of us is always going to like try to rupture that try to find new ways try to find ways around it um, and try to break things down or break out of these kinds of structures so it's really necessary to like to the process yeah yeah and I, I, I think a few people have talked about this right that the hysteria is always kind of providing us with the symptom of the times right and that's why i think in more mainstream psychology um you know it, it's kind of been pushed to the side if not entirely negated right as a, as a diagnostic term uh in part because it's always shifting and changing right the the hysterical symptoms um is 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 kind of evolutionary right or it's a, a de-evolutionary would be the better term right it's about kind of resisting um you know certain i think socio-cultural political developments um and i and i think that's um that's to me what what I hope is illuminating about putting, you know, in conversation, you know, the the canon of uh, psychoanalytic considerations of hysteria and hysterical discourse with um, the conservative media that I engage here is that um, I think it is conservative media, or at least of the the form the form that I engage with is. Uh, de-evolutionary. It is depoliticizing um, that uh, each each of the chapters and each of the cycles of films that I look at um, are really about um, negating um, the arguments of of their opponents. Not so much about taking an active political position, but actually by refusing to take a position um, by uh, performing. Um, what looks and sounds like political argumentation or debate, um, but is instead just a kind of, uh, I think a gesture of, of what Jacques Rancière calls noise, right? Of just to, to confuse things, to complicate things so that um, we can't get anywhere. And, and you know, I think um, the uh, you know, conservative reactions to climate change is a, is a perfect example of that, that I think the mainstream conservative politicians and pundits and um, opinion makers uh, rarely will go so far as to say that climate change isn't happening uh, or that it's, you know, you know, Trump would, I think, called it a hoax at some point, but I don't think of Trump as, as, as a hysteric. Um, I think more often the argument is like, well, I don't, you know, we, we don't really know enough. We need to keep studying uh, these things, maybe a warming planet will be a good thing for agriculture, you know, maybe things will change. Um, we need to, we need to know more. It's, it's this kind of uh, refusal um, to take a position that I think in, uh, in the case of, of climate science and, and the kind of politics necessary to respond to the climate crisis, um, has been unfortunately quite effective for their side. I, again, um, especially in the U.S. of preventing any, um, you know, kind of viable democratic uh, movement towards reshaping the, uh, you know, the, our society and our economy in a way that would be actually, I think, necessary to address this crisis. Yeah, I mean, that's how I feel anytime I hear them talking. It's like, what are they saying? They're saying nothing. Like, what are they saying? It's just these like talking points getting thrown around and like mixed together in different orders. It, it reminds me also like when you hear the QAnon people talking, it's like it's just this like rotation of memes that are like connecting in this like kind of associative, like clang association manner. And they just like keep going around and around and around. It doesn't really, it's saying nothing. 
Yeah, yeah. When I, and I think um, I would kind of place the the media objects that I engage somewhere kind of between the like the most extreme conspiracy theorists and theories that, that circulate online like QAnon um, and then uh, maybe more towards kind of the the moderate um, Republican politicking that, that that do have a kind of active agenda um, whether that's increasing military spending or limiting access to abortion or building the wall or whatever else that um, you know, between kind of the the most, you know, horrifying conspiracy theories and then uh, I think more kind of moderate Republican um, politics, you have, I think, this um, really influential uh, form of hysterical media that is really about, that is really just about knocking back, right, more kind of progressive policies and ideas that are emerging from the left, right? So denying climate change, um, one of the examples I use in, in the book is that, you know, uh, against Black Lives Matters, um, you know, the, the, re the response that all lives matter, right, which is lots of people have pointed out um, that there, there is no, you know, active political policy in favor of all lives, right? No one is actually, you know, out there protesting in favor of all lives. Um, the, the, the slogan is just a kind of attempt to uh, perform a response, right? Um, but but the very performance of that response is again depoliticizing. It, it kind of uh, copies um, an existing, quite active and important and influential movement, right? For for Black Lives, um, and then just throws out something that kind of muddies the water, right? Like what what does All Lives Matter mean? What is it for? Um, and I think to take it back to the to the clinic, which is which is something that I am, you know, I think really interested throughout throughout the book to to try to lean into you know kind of carefully and respectfully as someone who you know is is still you know a uh, you know kind of an academic uh, a film scholar who uh, who is not a clinician but nevertheless finds a lot of insight and inspiration uh, from I think especially the current era of of especially Lacanian practitioners who are writing and publishing these days um, the one of the ways the hysteric is often described in the clinic is someone who is um, giving to the analyst, kind of performing the symptom, whatever symptoms the hysteric believes the analyst is looking for, right? Um, so that, um, you know, it, through the performance of the symptom, if the analyst uh, falls for that trap, right, of, uh, of making a diagnosis, that, that the hysteric will there, thereby, you know, avoid any real actual you know, analytic engagement, right? And, and, you know, Freud talks about Dora in this way, that Dora is offering all these, her own kind of conspiracy theories about uh, her father and Frau K and, and all of the unusual ways in which the families are ending up in the same cities at the same time. And, and, and Freud says he absolutely believes everything that she's saying, right? That what might sound like conspiracy theories uh, are in fact probably accurate. Uh, but then Freud says, nevertheless, um, she's offering um, all of these um, kind of points of data and information so that, that an analysis can never actually get going, right? To kind of fill that time, to give Freud something to chew on, to distract him. Um, and, and I found really like in throughout the, the films I, I look at, um, this overwhelming use of information, data, arguments, constant different opinions, all, all on the kind of the reactionary side of things, uh, but never arriving at a kind of coherent um, 
political argument. And, and I think that's, that's to me one of the hallmarks uh, of hysterical discourse is that, um, you know, th- so much is thrown at the listener or the viewer um, that we don't even know where we stand or what we're hearing. But that is actually um, just as it's, I think, um, you know, kind of psychically beneficial for the hysteric who in the clinic is also cynically beneficial for, um, for you know, I think right wingers who don't have any science or evidence or facts to back up their position. So it's better to just muddy the waters, right? And not that they're necessarily doing it on purpose, um, but I think it, it works out nonetheless. Yeah, it's also, I had forgotten the tea party. I had repressed them, but really <laughs> they seem to be, become like the main like Republican stance. Um, whereas when they mm-hmm. first popped up, they seemed like so extreme. And now it's like, like seems like the norm on the on the right unfortunately yeah for sure for sure and, and i and i think um unfortunately you're right it, it it's both become more of the norm and it continues right with with covid denial um you know I, and you know with uh i think the strategic production of of mass hysteria and I think, I think that's the appropriate word around critical race theory. And, you know, we live in a school district here in Colorado that just, uh, you know, outlawed the teaching of critical race theory in elementary schools. And of course, critical race theory was not being taught in elementary school. So they're banning something that doesn't exist. It's certainly not in the way that they describe it. And they're banning you know, uh, books and theories and ideas that they haven't read, mm. um, which which I think is, uh, again, horrifying and quite scary. Yeah, that is terrifying. I'm a bit removed from that being in Sweden, but I've heard, I've heard like bits of this popping up. I don't really mm. understand the full, the full thing that's happening with it right now. No one does, right? But I think that's, that's part <laughs> of the point. It's like, what's, What's actually happening? Like all of a sudden, um, at least on my Facebook feed, and you know, and, and I'm still, you know, interested in in, in conservative media and, and and continuing to work on on this. And so I, I unfortunately do subscribe and follow, uh, you know, kind of prominent conservative outlets. So I kind of see it on a daily basis. But like all of a sudden, there are just parents going to school board meetings across the country, yelling at um, at school board members for you know teaching critical race theory or yelling at them for maybe requiring masks during a pandemic. Um, and, and it's, and it is, it is really strange to watch because it's like, you don't, they don't, they clearly don't know what they're talking about. And then as we're, as you know, watching from a distance, it's, I don't know what they're talking about. And, and, and yet at the same time, you know, legislation is being passed, right? The, the, the prevents schools right, from, from uh, requiring masks or prevents the teaching of a, of a, of a, of an important discipline yeah I'm from Florida originally and so that's really the only kind of section of the news in the states I've been following which is enough (laughs) and um yeah the governor there is actually like actively like taking money away from schools like defunding or saying he will defund schools if they require masks right right when I and I think that's um it seems like we're maybe the uh, again another another moment, another development in these in these issues where now you have 
uh, yeah, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, who, you know, signing legislation exclusively on Fox News, right, and um, seeming to legislate or, um, or to kind of develop his ex executive orders, you know, strictly as a kind of performance for, for the kind of um, Fox News, Newsmax, Breitbart audience, right, which is which is a whole other kind of scary. How do we make politics not this like entertainment? Like it's so depressing that things are done for ratings instead of like their integrity or value. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, well, I, I think it's a great question. Um, and I think it's probably the question that, I don't know that I can answer it, but I believe uh, quite strongly that it's the question that, those of us working in psychoanalysis um, are kind of the best prepared to answer, right? To, um, to recognize that um, politics entails enjoyment, right? And that, um, and that I think one of the things that has made, um, you know, in, in the US especially, but I think also in the, the rise of, of kind of right-wing uh, populist movements around the globe is is that a lot of these leaders are, um, and I'm certainly not the first to, to notice this, are really um, taking advantage uh, in a cynical manner with the, the fact that um, enjoyment drives us, right? And, and recognize, and I, I think without knowing it, recognizing that, um, you know, jouissance, as we well know, is, is, a, is this kind of mixture of pain uh, and pleasure is uh, is a kind of galvanizing force for you know these you know movements that we definitely saw under Trump, um, you know, and the the you know anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric with which he began his campaign and all the stuff around around building the wall. So I think I think that's something that that we should take seriously. I think also that just as um, the those who are you know working in, in in psychoanalysis whether theoretically or in the clinic i think have to keep continually pushing uh, against um mainstream psychology and reminding you know psychology of the importance of the unconscious uh for instance i think um for those of us working in culture need to you know remind uh, academics and journalists of the centrality of enjoyment right to the to the political sphere that um, I think there is still a, a tendency in in kind of uh, trade books and in journalism to still dismiss uh, the right for their ignorance, for their nonsense, for their stupidity. Um, and I think that that and, and this is, a, I think, another central argument of the book is that that relies on a fantasy of common sense, right, that there is some sort of um, symbolic structure that we could all, you know, hold, uh, hold on together and, and agree to. Um, and so I think um, this is why I try not to, uh, even though I'm maybe doing it a bit in this, uh, in this conversation, I try not to denigrate um, these films as stupid as nonsensical or whatever else, right, and to really embrace the analytical stance um, that if, um, if we're going to produce a change, Right. I think we need to step away from our moral judgments of trying to, you know, reproduce, you know, whatever is commonsensical for us in, in the other. Right. Whether that's our political opponent or the analyst end, um, that that, you know, really avoids, I think, the necessary trauma in this case of democratic antagonism. That this is, um, to my mind, an una unavoidable feature uh, of democratic engagement, that there are. Um, that there are people 
um, with whom we will may have to interact who just share nothing in common with, with us, right? Um, but who may nevertheless become ascendant, may have their candidate win the presidency, um, even if their candidate knows almost absolutely nothing about anything, right? Um, and so that, that's where I, I think, um, you know, I'm obviously, I'm quite biased in this, in this way that, that psychoanalysis is like all the more necessary. Um, and it's also why I'm, I'm just so glad to, uh, to see just the, I think the wonderful, um, collection of, of interviews that you've done here and that are, you know, appear on other uh, podcast networks um, for the psychoanalytically inclined that I think it's really an important uh, and necessary framework, you know, both for this moment. Yeah, that's, that's exactly why I'm doing it because I really feel like psychoanalytic <laughs> thinking can, can help people think in more nuanced ways and think about things in different ways and not, like you said, it's not just we can't just think of everything in an intellectual way or like, oh, well, if we just teach people to change their behaviors or if we just teach people to think of it this way or reframe their thinking or whatever, or educate them. It's like, that's not how it works. Like there are drives happening. People are getting off. We say enjoy, but like people are getting off on this. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, you yes, know, yes. that's a hard thing to contend with. And we need to like keep that in mind when we're working with these issues. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I have a, a chapter where I look at religious documentaries and, uh, you know, Bill Maher uh, has this uh, documentary called Religious, where he goes and, and just kind of makes, and makes fun of these religious fundamentalists who were, um, you know, quite, quite uh, influential in the late 90s, early 2000s, helping to get, you know, George W. Bush elected. Um, and, uh, and, and I think the, the film is so... Uh, unhelpful and it's kind of again denigration of the beliefs um, of others right and, and, and even as I am again like uh, horrified um, by again the kind of ascendancy of, of Trump of the Tea Party whatever else um, of you know religious fundamentalists uh, like Mike Pence in the vice presidency and whatever else um, I think it just kind of does a disservice um, to understanding politics and the political, understanding the nature of subjectivity um, to just disregard uh, belief in whatever form that it takes, right, as, as somehow, um, you know, correctable or revisable, if, if only we could, you know, read the right books or watch the right documentaries. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the, the major gestures I'm trying to make in, in Beyond Bias is, is number one, to get away from, you know, the claims of, of bias in, 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 our, uh, in our accounts of political media, right? Like, um, of course, everyone's biased. And, and of course, right-wing media is highly biased. Um, but one way to think about bias for me is, is the kind of um, constitutive split uh, in, in subjectivity, right? The, the Lacan especially talks so much about, right? That, that we are all divided subjects. Um, and I, I don't think that means that, I don't think that leads to like absolute relativism that you believe what you want and I believe what I want and, you know, we'll just see what happens. Um, but I, I think it is important to just, to get away from the moral denigration, right? That, um, that this, uh, that I think is also, you know, central to the, the way that the left often gets off, especially in our kind of favorite, um, a lot of our favorite um, media outlets, right? I mean, the, the Daily Show really isn't, you know, isn't, a, you know, as popular as it once was but you know you know the 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 kind of left personalities like Keith Olbermann, John Stewart, John Oliver right now um, who give us these lovely speeches 
you know, on their on their shows about how awful our opponents are. Um, and I think that's another kind of, uh, you know, expression of enjoyment that's not terribly helpful. Yeah, exactly. I often think like when people are like, how can they think that or just like, yeah, denigrating other people. I, I often think, well, they think the same thing about you, you know, <laughs> like they feel just as strongly, like, how can you think that? And also like when people are wanting to like change somebody else's mind in this like argumentative way, it's like, that's not going to work. And it's not going to work if someone yells at you about something either. So it's like people on all sides feel similarly, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and that's where I think, um, you know, I, I hope in, in a small way, you know, that I, I can kind of con contribute to these discussions and to think about um, the way psychoanalytic theory needs to continue to, you know, rethink its, its tenets and, and evolve as, as the times evolve. You know, you know, the way Freud talked about that uh, as, as, you know, as many of his central claims became popularized, that it became harder to uh, engage in clinical practice. If someone, if someone comes into analysis and believes they have an edible complex, all of a sudden the, the, the positions that the analyst can take are, are, are a bit more circumscribed. Um, and so I think, I think that's a, a kind of important takeaway um, of applying uh, psychoanalytic theory to these, these cultural phenomenon is, is not that we just fit these, um, these new, uh, you know, social and political formations into pre-established psychoanalytic categories, but rather we kind of continue to shift and develop those categories in response um, to these events. I like that. And you said something in the beginning that I want to talk more about, because you talked about yeah. learning in like literary theory, how you took the same text and like looked at it through all these different lenses. And it just made me envious, like, oh, I wish I had gotten to do that in graduate school um, because my <laughs> schooling was like very, very clinical. Um, I have a society, so it's like literally just like clinical work. It's not like philosophy so much or anything like that. But um, I mean, of course there was psychological theory, but I did have one supervisor that taught us to look at patients that way. Like, okay, first look at this patient mm -hmm like in a purely behavioral way, what, what, how would you treat them totally just behavior based and then cognitively like CBT based, what would you do? And then think of them like in an existential model and think of them uh, from a Freudian like drive theory, think of them from object relations theory like that. And I found that so incredibly useful. And it also made me see that like all of these things are right in their way. Like I see how all of these perspectives exist and how they're all like looking at different parts of the person and, and treating that. But then I guess people get so like narrow-minded that they just think like one is the correct way to look at someone rather than like trying to be more holistic. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because it, it, I don't really announce this in the book, but I, I think it, it you know, I think it may come across uh, to folks who, who are well-versed in kind of the different psychoanalytic schools is that I was kind of interested in bringing together, um, you know, psychoanalytic work that's, uh, you know, in literary theory and cultural studies and film theory, but um, also, you know, bringing in some, some the work of practitioners. Um, you know, I, I, I talk a little about, about Christopher Bolas, uh, you know, in his book on, on hysteria, Juliet Mitchell, you know, is kind of, is already kind of in the, in the middle anyways. Um, but, you know, folks like, you know, Patricia Garavici, Danny Nobis, Bruce Fink, um, and, and, and not to say that I'm, I'm certainly not, not the first person to, to working in literary or film studies to, uh, to cite prominent uh, practitioners, but I but I think I, I think it is 
uh, really important and, and I'm, I'm convinced that, that um, it can be useful to take a, a more holistic approach, right? Like I, I find a lot of insight um, in Lacan's account of hysterical uh, discourse. Um, and I, but I also still find insight in kind of the, the French feminist uh, movement, you know, around, you know, you know, folks like Sisu and Arigurai and Kristeva uh, uh, and, and, and their accounts of, of, of hysterical discourse as a form of viable protest, right? That um, I think there's a, this really important moment in the 70s and 80s when, you know, uh, feminism and psychoanalysis are so intimately linked and the, um, the valorization of, um, political protest before one yet has a vocabulary for what one is protesting against. That when, you know, hysteria is used as a denigrating term, right? That, you know, you know, in, in, in the stereotypical way, this woman doesn't know what she's talking about, you know, as it's, as, as it's been used historically or um, as a denigration of populist movements of these people don't know what they're talking about. Um, that I think um, a, a lot of the, the folks that I cite in the book um, point to hysteria as this necessary moment of breakdown and that one, one sh should sometimes protest even if one doesn't yet know what one is asking for. And that's, um, uh, again, and, and Lacan says this too, this is a, necess a necessary uh, point of breakdown in the analysis where nothing makes sense anymore, right? Um, and I think that can be highly useful both like interpersonally and, and also politically. Um, and I think we saw that uh, with the protests against Trump uh, in, in 2016. Um, but then I think that's also where we need um, and can benefit from clinicians who, who are deal dealing with hysterical patients, you know, on a, on a sometimes daily basis um, and to recognize that um, hysteria can be, a, again, a kind of useful breakthrough moment, but it also can be um, the means for a cyclical repetition that, that prevents change, progress or development. Yeah, exactly. And you, you have to learn to listen, listen to what it's saying. <laughs> Try to listen to yeah. it um, instead of just like, yeah, trying to control it. You kind of have to let it play out a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's if, if any, if nothing else, that's I think the service I'm trying to provide is because folks often come up to me uh, when they hear about the work and they're like, how did you sit through this? How did you watch these, these films? Like I could never, you know, I tried once to watch, you know, a Dinesh D'Souza film, you know, on Obama and I, I got five minutes in and couldn't, couldn't do any more. Right. It's, these are the kinds of things that I, that I hear. And I, and I think that's again, where, um, I mean, I'm drawing a little bit from bi my biography and that I grew up with this kind of media uh, in the car, in the living room. And so in some sense, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, you know, used to it. Um, but, but, I, but I think that's also, I think the analytic stance of, of being willing to listen um, to, to things that, 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 you know, may horrify us and yet not sitting with that um, from the analyst side, right? You know, one, I, I imagine that this is, this is the case that one's not going to have a, um, a kind of impactful treatment if, if you're letting your personal uh, kind of opinions and viewpoints and perspectives of an, as an analyst, you know, come into the the session exactly exactly <laughs> I, I hope I, I hope I'm getting it somewhat right I don't know <laughs> yeah I like it um I had something else that popped in my head but now it's gone well I guess it's still Friday whether I only had one patient today or not <laughs> okay. totally 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 I know. I'm what are you like, working you know, on now um, what am I, so I'm, uh, 
I'm still, you know, a, a little, you know, interested in this uh, material. I don't, I don't want to become like, you know, I don't, I don't want my entire career to center on, on right-wing media. I think that would just, uh, that would be too depressing. Um, but I am, I am interested in the moment at the, especially the kind of um, response to COVID and the denial of COVID um, as a, as a pandemic. Um, and, and I think it's, um, a kind of interesting, slightly different um, case. Um, I don't, I don't know if it's hysterical, but I, I think what, again, what interested me in the documentaries, the conservative documentaries that I take up in the book, is this kind of refusal to participate in democratic debate, right? Even as they're making films that look as if they're debating, again, climate change. Um, the, the uh, you know, capitalism and the economy after 2008, um, what to do about, you know, systemic racism, you know, for every, you know, contemporary political topic, there's a conservative documentary film that's talking about it. Um, but all, but at, at the end of the day, the films, the argument kind of boils down to there's nothing to see here. There's really nothing to talk about. There's no real problems in society. Everything's fine. Um, you know, you you know, the the only real problem are people like you know Michael Moore or Barack Obama who tell us that we need to change things, right? That that's um, I think the move that they make. And so I'm I'm interested in this kind of refusal to participate, this kind of withdrawal um, from political engagement that that I think has played out in in really troubling and impactful ways during during COVID of this, you know, just refusal to believe the science or refusal to wear masks. Um, or uh, you know, I think what I'm most interested in the moment is this particular kind of algorithmic um, argument uh, that, that boils down to the phrase with not from. Um, and this is the argument that lots of people may have died um, with COVID in their system. Them, but they didn't die from COVID is the kind of conservative argument is that, well, yeah, you know, um, you know, people might have been dying uh, from from the virus, but it was really other, you know, maybe they had a heart condition um, or something else that's the real explanation. So it's this way of kind of picking away at the data, um, you know, and to, that allows them to argue that, you know, COVID isn't more deadly than the flu, you know, that then as that is picked up in the in the conservative media with kind of other just denigrations of uh, in the US of Anthony Fauci or whoever else that I think then produces, you know, situations where people are going unmasked, not getting the vaccine. Um, and it's, you know, it's I, I, one way I describe it is what if we had a pandemic and no one showed up, right? Like there's, there's a way in which, um, and I have family in Oklahoma, you know, which is, which is a very conservative state here where, you know, when I, uh, when I visited over the summer, it was almost as if this thing had never happened, right? Um, that they're just kind of going about their lives. And I, and I think, um, I don't blame it all on conservative media, but I think at least, you know, the media um, that, that a lot of those people consume certainly contributes to their, again, refusal to accept kind of what's right in front of them. Yeah, I mean, there's even videos of like people dying in the hospital that are still talking about how they don't believe in the virus when they're dying from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I and I think there there's a way in which um, you know the what what's often referred to as the echo chamber of of conservative media, um, you know, really produces a kind of separate ideological 
political epistemological universe um, that is really hard to break through if you're not, if you're an outsider, right? Like it's, um, they, I think they really are speaking a different language, if not like just a whole different kind of, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if I like this word, but species, right? Like it's almost like there's, there's no, there's no point. Like a different much. reality, yeah. It is, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, Trump. Steven yeah. Reisner talked about um, Trump, and maybe I'll have this, his talk. It was when he was first elected, um, yeah. and he gave a talk about the people making fun of Trump and saying, like, how stupid he was or what an idiot he was or these kinds of things and not taking what he was doing seriously and what a problem that is because clearly he has a lot of power and is affecting a lot of people and things and causing a lot of devastation in ways and to not take that seriously no matter like by just denigrating that person um it's just doing a disservice to everyone and he gave a talk on on it at the new school I guess it must have been early 2017 and maybe I'll have it be uh, an episode after this so that people can hear it or I'll definitely link to it um, called crazy like a fox and he's like is somebody you know that was the other thing he's either stupid or he's crazy right but like is somebody really delusional or psychotic if they are able to somehow like make us all then like live in this delusion of theirs you know <laughs> like what is that exactly yeah yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's really interesting. And um, yeah, Trump is such a hard, you know, kind of figure to place. Um, I mean, I, I do think that, um, I don't know, there, there seems something, you know, kind of perverse or kind of perverse structure in, in, in Trump, um, you know, not, not just the way that like he promotes, you know, kind of his, his pleasure, but I think more, more at the level of, of disavowal and of the kind of recognition that the rules, that there are certain rules that exist, but without uh, a kind of commitment to follow them um, that, I, that I think is really interesting. And, and, and I, uh, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing kind of more and more, um, you know, discussion of perversion as, as a social structure, I think after Trump, I think for good, for good reason. Um, I, I do think that, um, Trump quite clearly, you know, hystericized the left, right? Um, and that, um, and rightly so, right? And, and that's why I think we should, you know, I, probably for you and for, you know, listeners of this podcast, we don't need to, uh, you know, clarify that hysteria is, is not a necessarily a denigrative or derogative term, right? Um, but I think the, the way that, that Trump has had uh, and continues to have, you know, this power and influence while also, I think, quite clearly not knowing what he's talking about most of the time, right? That the this this barred uh, big other, this lacking big other, right? Uh, if one is, you know, subjected to having to live under his presidency or to, uh, you know, live uh, in in a globe where he is, you know, uh, you know, commander in chief of the uh, kind of a you know American military industrial complex. Um, that can be, I think, reasonably uh, hystericizing. Um, and so, you know, but I think we're just to, you know, kind of to, to bring it back to, to, or how I flip it in, in the book is that this is, I think, what conservative media is often trying to do um, in its kind of political gestures of, 
of to 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 make the the other the master whatever kind of language you want to use lacking right that um, of finding you know anything that that allows us to kind of escape from say the authority of science uh, or of the the fact that you know that that sometimes Democrats win elections and maybe we should figure out a way to compromise or something else that I think that they're I think they are often trying to produce the very same scenario that a lot of us had to live with under Trump this kind of hysterical why why is this person in charge they don't actually know what they're doing yeah and what's going on with the U.S. that he could become in charge. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. absolutely. You know, shouldn't, yeah. shouldn't people have to have some sort of background check or credit check? You know, we have to have them for everything else. I had to have one to become a psychologist. Why don't they have to have one to be the president? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, right. And, and you know, uh, not, that, not that we have to, you know, as, as someone who grew up evangelical, I can't, I can't stop evangelizing for whatever, you know, my, you know, my kind of system of beliefs. But again, like, I think we need psychoanalysis to explain these kind of trans subjective phenomenon, right, that in some sense, and again, like, I think, as, as a lot of people have noted, it wasn't just, you know, Trump, the person, I think, is less important than the kind of social uh, and political structure that would allow for someone like that to, to rise to power. Yeah, exactly. Because he's the master of saying nothing. It's just like, I think that like, whatever it was like person, man, woman, person, TV cameras, like the <laughs> epitome of that is like, what is happening? <laughs> Sarah Cooper on uh, TikTok. Is that, am I getting the name right? But who, who's, have you seen that? The TikTok where I'm not on TikTok yet. Well, it's, it's on YouTube. <laughs> But yeah, there's a, um, I think, I think the comedian's name is Sarah Cooper. I, I might be getting it wrong, but she, I've watched her version of Trump doing that man person <laughs> TV camera so many times. Right? I'll have to look that up. I can link to that too. Yeah, check it out. <laughs> um, and the other thing with like the COVID denial is like, why, why do they want to kill their own like base? You know, like these are the people that are voting for them. I don't understand that at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I have, you know, I have family members who have uh, had COVID who, you know, were not careful, um, who are not, who are refusing to get the vaccine. Um, you know, so I, I mean, I see it just happening in the news, but I also, I've also just seen it. Uh, in my in my personal life, um, and yeah, I, th I think it's uh, I think it's just the case that from a, you know a variety of of um, factors from upbringing to media intake to in some cases uh, religious affiliation um, that they just honestly disbelieve um, in in the science, right? And and uh, um, and again, that's where I try not to be judgmental. I think that my my manner of enjoyment, one of the things that I enjoy so much that, that again, like happened when I got to, to university is that I, I just love expertise. I'm like taken in um, by expert knowledge, right? And, uh, and so I, I, I enjoy going to, you know, colloquia on campus, you know, from my colleagues in the natural sciences and to hear what they're up to. And I'm just um, like amazed by, um, by, you know, the, that's, you know, the positive, uh, outcomes of, of expert knowledge and research and whatever else. Um, but, but I also, you know, want to recognize that that's kind of my affective orientation, right? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm taken in with expertise while also recognizing experts can be wrong and, uh, and 
and also do terrible things. I'm not, uh, I'm not naive that way. Um, but I think there, there is a way in which, um, in, in part, due to kind of uh, conservative media, and especially in the US, in the US the, the still kind of remnants and, and, uh, and kind of active uh, politicization of religious fundamentalism, um, really a denial of, 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 of any expertise that doesn't come from within the circle, right? That they'll, they'll believe their pastor uh, and what their pastor has to say about COVID or a pandemic before, you know, epidemiologists. And, um, and, I, and I, again, I think we should take that seriously. Like, I don't really understand the science of climate change. I just kind of trust, you know, the, the experts. experts right? <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, I, you know, I watch the documentary films and, you know, I, I, I don't feel like I just, you know, believe in it because people say it. I, you know, I think there's, there's so much data and research to back it up. And experience. Um, <laughs> you can see it happening with the fires and being from Miami with the huge increase of hurricanes they used to be so rare when I was a kid and now it's just like every year there's something yeah yeah I mean we're we're really watching it happen before our eyes which is it's it is scary yeah the thing I like I like being around people when they're doing the thing that they love to do which actually you yeah, saying yeah. like what you like, it's like, that's also this podcast, you know? That's why I'm like, I just want to hear people talk about what they're into because I'm into that. I'm into listening to people talk about what they're into or do what they're into. Like if a friend has some sort of thing they like to perform or music or whatever, I'm not really particular about what the music is or the performance or the art or whatever. I just like love people doing whatever they love to do. That makes me happy. So. Right. right. No, I think it's great. And I think uh, what a great kind of ethic to follow for a podcast. And, you know, we started talking about Lack and, and uh, Todd and some of the other organizers, but that was my experience when, the, when we first did the Lack conference is I've never seen a, a building of, uh, of academics and scholars and practitioners so happy Right. It was, uh, you know, uh, you know, especially in the context where, um, you know, folks who are working in philosophy and literature and political theory where where psychoanalysis isn't isn't uh, quite as prominent or valued as it, as it maybe once was that to, to gather all of these people into a single building, everybody was just happy to be together and to talk and to give their papers. Uh, and uh, it was it was it was quite fun. Um, and and the lat and the lat conference is is continuing on and is uh, in in Vermont this uh, this coming April. Well, finger fingers crossed. Uh, um, yeah, I saw yeah. that twenty twenty two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm 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 hopeful to go, um, and I'm glad not to organize. I organize. I helped organize the first two, and then uh, uh, it was at Clark University last time. Uh, and then uh, and the University of Vermont coming up, and it's a lot more fun to just go and participate. You can and just enjoy, enjoy it. <laughs> enjoy, enjoy the Lacanian love. It's it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird, beautiful thing. It's a fun group of people. Thank you to all of the philosophers and literary majors and film theorists for keeping psychoanalysis alive, because psychology sure tried to kill it, and the psychoanalytic institutes as well. <laughs> well do it and do you do you have a sense of this like i mean this is just to like get off get off topic a little bit um I, I do feel like it's a kind of interesting moment where so many of the books on my desks right are um you know i think practicing analysts who are you know really producing new audiences right i'm thinking of like jameson webster and uh, Pat patricia garavici 
um, Derek Hook and like, and so, and so many that you've had on your, uh, on your podcast, like, is there, is there something happening? Like, or is it just that I'm, you know, I'm so I'm pre-selecting, you know, the, you know, the kind of the best work that's happening in, in kind of cultural theory and, and analysis and all that. What do you, what do you, do you have a take on that? I think it's I think it's a good moment for psychoanalysis like I think you said before we started recording because I think people are tired of like the mainstream medical model of diagnosis and being medicated and over medicated and put into all these boxes and told how they are and like sometimes of course a label can be helpful it helps someone like understand like oh there's other people that also feel this way and things like that but like it's just it's too much (laughs) and I think people um are kind of yearning for at least in see but I also know my sphere is very uh esoteric because in my experience people seem to be like yearning for these like more nuanced ways of looking for things and like more sophisticated ways not being so reactionary and just like being stuck in this binary back and forth argument you know that's just very reactive um but trying to look at like multiple ways of functioning or looking at things in the world um but I also only talk to like psychoanalysts people from the podcast people coming in for psychoanalysis (laughs) so they're all pretty like insight oriented people that are like searching and trying to learn and things like that so yeah I I had the I have just the benefit and the luck of of ending up at Colorado College where we have a minor in, in psychoanalysis um and we have um you know my colleague in philosophy John Riker um, you know, writes on self-psychology, uh, Jonathan Lee, who's a Lacanian, who wrote a book on Lacan in the 90s, Marcia Dobson, uh, who's a Jungian and also a practicing analyst. And we, we actually teach a class in Los Angeles the, at the Contemporary Institute of Psychoanalysis and um, meet, meet with analysts who talk about their, their practices. Um, and they, get a, they, they don't seem to understand like what happens when I want to talk about film and media and culture. And they're like, we're not really, they don't really know what to say about that. But um, yeah, for any any folks, I'm I'm trying to set up a course in in New York at some point in the next couple of years to do the same thing, like kind of bring my uh, kind of literary and cinematic interests in psychoanalytic theory, but also meet with uh, with some of the you know kind of open minded practitioners there and, and have those conversations. So, if any, if anyone's well, are you on the Unbehagen listserv? On the what? Unbehagen. No. Uh-uh. Um, I'll put you on the Unbehagen listserv, so I will tell you what Unbehagen is. So basically, um, Jameson and I went to the same psychoanalytic institute and um, had complaints. And Jameson and Michael Garfinkel, who who I've interviewed from the podcast as well, they were a year ahead of me. And they, so they had even more complaints. (laughs) Um, And they wrote a letter to the school, which I can link to, like kind of voicing their complaints um, and like the ways that they thought could be useful in, in training psychoanalysts. And of course we're completely shut down and nothing happened. And, you know, people pretended to have meetings, but you know, it didn't really come to anything. So um, basically we all ended up leaving the, that Institute and they both ended up going and training at IPTAR um, and finishing there. Um, and I went and got a Lacanian analyst and a Lacanian supervisor and a Lacanian study group and finished that way. Um, and, yeah, and so we, we realized, like, before we officially kind of left, 
that, you know, we knew a lot of these analysts that we've been reading, you know, these, a lot of these people are living, like you're saying, that we're reading and there's a lot of great psychoanalytic literature coming out. And just being in New York, you know, everybody kind of passes through New York at some point or another. Um, so we knew people from going to their lectures and then like going out to dinner afterwards and stuff like that, networking in that way. So we realized like, you know, when you're in an institute, I don't know if people realize this because not everyone's been in institutional training, but you know, if you want to do anything, you want to present a talk or anything, everything has to be approved. There's boards that have to look at it and be like, yes or no, that you can do this or that. And it's so frustrating. And of course, I would, I'm really into like art and psychoanalysis. And I'd be like, you know, look at this great paper, this idea. And they're just, they're just like, no, <laughs> like, what is this? This doesn't have anything to do with psychoanalysis. I'm like, okay. Um, so we, we realized like, instead of having to go through all these boards and like asking all these like dinosaurs for permission of what we can and cannot talk about, like, why don't we just go directly to the analysts that we love to read and like, see if like, say somebody like Danny Nobis is coming to talk at Columbia University and like, you know, he's getting paid to do that or whatever. And maybe he'll like spend an evening while he's in New York uh, talking to our group of like, you know, up and coming analysts or early career clinicians or whatever you want to call us, you know, um, and see, you know, and most people do because they want to talk to students. They want to talk to people that want to learn and listen, you know, they're interested in that. So basically we just started doing that and everybody was like, yeah, yeah, we'll come talk to you. And so we, we started this group that we called Das Umbehagen which came from Freud's civilization and its discontents because we were the discontent uh, in the civilization of psychoanalytic institutes. <laughs> um, and that was back in 2012. Um, and our first speaker was Otto Kernberg and he's a pretty big analyst and uh, I'd been reading him, you know, in grad school and everything. And we were really surprised, but happy that he agreed to come because we couldn't, you know, we couldn't pay these people. Um, but he, we were really surprised and happy that he came to talk to us. And then we learned um, in preparing for his talk that he actually had written papers about like how psychoanalytic institutes kill the creativity of psychoanalytic candidates. Um, because if you want to do anything like new or innovative, it's just all like shut down. Like they just want you to like learn how to be like whatever their master is of their institute, basically. Um, and the institute I went to um, had been everybody in that institute had been trained by Charles Brenner. And Charles Brenner, you know, he's an analyst and he has had an idea that was interesting, which was like compromise formation. It's basically like, you know, you have the inner id things. And you have the outer reality and like basically everything you do in Brenner's idea is a compromise formation between, you know, your inside impulses and outer reality. And he thinks your ego is that, you know, every action you take is that everything is a compromise formation. And it's like, okay, I get that. That doesn't take that long to learn. <laughs> you know, like, like I, I got that idea, but literally, like, do I need to learn that for four years straight? You know, it's just like, there has to be something else with psychoanalysis besides that. You know, that's how I felt. So I made through like three, I almost made it to the end of the third year that I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Um, especially because Jameson, Jameson uh, was already studying with David Lichtenstein and he was at uh, CUNY teaching like uh, grad students in psychology, psychoanalysis. And so she asked him to come to the Institute and they taught a class together, like in the evening, that was like something you could take additionally to 
the regular kind of course that they had us on. And then once I started learning Lacan from uh, David Lichtenstein and Jameson, it was just like, forget it. Like, I can't even listen to this anymore, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's just like, yeah, we're back to dreams and language and the cut and slips and all the things that Freud talked about. Like, the, that's what's interesting. That's the unconscious coming through. Um, so yeah, put you on the dot simple hook in this serve, and then you can just talk to people there about it. I mean, there's like a thousand people on there, um, but most there's a lot of people in New York on there. Jameson and Patricia and all those people you've named are on there, and so you can always like talk to them and like organize something that way to to, to make it happen. That was our whole point as well. It's like whatever anybody wants to do, we want to help you make it happen. Um, so if you have an yeah. idea, you like bring it to the group, and then whoever else is interested in making it happen. Like we, when we were all in New York together, like when I was there, it'd be like, okay, well, who can get a room? You know, somebody works at the new school, somebody works at NYU, somebody can get a room at a library. You know, we just like find a room, get flyers together, you know, tell the network about it to promote people's events and then people would show up. So it was like basically supporting this idea of supporting everybody and whatever they wanted to do that had to do with psychoanalysis. Uh, I'm so glad to hear all of this thank you for that and i'm glad that this now has become about like my course preparation for next year <laughs> but it's, it's i mean one of the weird things about like at colorado college we teach on this block plan where we teach one class at a time and students take one class at a time for um, for a month um and so you know rather than dividing up between different you know disciplines taking four classes you know in a semester it's just one one thing at a time which makes it like really manageable to get up and teach a course really anywhere in the world um for a month at a time and so that's this is uh, one of the things i'm interested in is is, you know, to, to take a group of undergraduates, uh, you know, to New York or like what we've done in L.A. Oh, that's so cool. And how immersive. You can, they can really be immersed in that subject. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And it, it worked out uh, ama amazing when we were at the Institute in Los Angeles where, you know, we would read, you know, articles uh, by the analysts who are affiliated with the Institute and then uh, and then be able to come in and, and chat with them. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Wonderful. Well, I will add you to Umbahaka. Of course, mind-blowing for the students. Yeah, yeah. And yeah you can thank you. Make it happen. That's what we're all about. I'm making whatever you want happen. <laughs> That's right. Because we yeah. don't need we don't need an authority to tell us what we can and cannot do, and we don't need That's to ask the permission. Kids, but, yeah. <laughs> That's not what I tell my kids, especially when they're not going to bed. But yes, I think the rest of the time, absolutely. For adults. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Scott Critch. For more, check out his book, Beyond Bias, Conservative Media, Documentary Form, and the Politics of Hysteria, available from Oxford University Press, 2021. Follow him at Twitter, at S. Critch. That's S. K-R-Z-Y-C-H at Twitter. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. And now, there is only one libido.
from the album This is Voyeurism, a collaboration I did with Pete Murphy, available at Bandcamp. Just visit highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. In gender, sex, and the sexual, Jean Laplanche differentiated gender, sex, and sexuality in the following way. Gender is plural. It is oftentimes seen as dual, as in masculine, feminine, but it is not so by nature. It is actually plural, existing on a continuum. Sex is dual. It is so by virtue of sexual reproduction and also by virtue of its human symbolization, which sets and freezes the duality as presence, absence, or phallic, castrated. The sexual is multiple, polymorphous. It is the object of psychoanalysis. Sexuality and the unconscious may be seen as one and the same. Sexuality is subversive. Sexual identity may change over a person's lifetime or circumstances. Sexuality is fluid and does not have prescribed object, objective, or path. The drive doesn't work on the whole person or body, but rather is focused on fragments or individual activities. There is only one libido, and therefore there is no psychic representative of the opposition masculine, feminine, in the unconscious. The subject is inserted into her sexual nature. Sexuality precedes ego or identity. Any attempt to grasp onto identity may be seen as grappling with sexuality. Intrinsic sexual nature. In an attempt to categorize it, restrict it 
maintain it. Give it a limit in an effort to control it. Normalization is pathological. We see the erotic object through the obstacle, be it a door or glass. And this is voyeurism. 